Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. As we think about data, there are three types of it that are crucial to understanding law firm performance and why they are so difficult to leverage. We talk about that issue with our guest today, self-described sociologist of lawyers, Marcy Borgel-Schunk. She has a fascinating multidisciplinary background that she brings to her work with Tilt Institute, which offers analytics, leadership training and coaching, cultural assessments, and much more to help law firms transform their businesses. Initially intrigued by the question of why some firms perform better than others, Marcy has spun her skills in analytics, statistics, and data visualization into a fascinating body of work. She's a great example of how people from disciplines beyond law are changing the legal ecosphere. In addition to talking about the types of data that can be used to enhance the law firm performance, we also talked about how Marcy uses data to get firms to think differently about their market opportunities, their strategies, their talent pool, and more. We also cover the process she employs to help people understand how to connect the dots between data and the application of data. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hi, Marcy. How are you? I am doing well, Steve. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you so much for making the time today. It is my pleasure. Let's start by talking a little bit about your history. For the last five years since you founded the Tilt Institute, you've been working and driving a lot of change in the industry, but you didn't start as a lawyer. (laughs) I did You started as a sociology major at Harvard. So how does a sociology major, and I know you sort of refer to yourself as a sociologist for lawyers, which I'm going to want to hear more about, but how does it come that a sociology major of a noble profession becomes interested in the legal profession? So it's such an interesting question. And and that term that you just referred to, I just thought about that a year ago when I was reflecting on joining the College of Law Practice Management and I was trying to think of how to describe myself. And it just occurred to me that that seems to be a thread that has run through my life. So for those of you who don't know, psychology and sociology are close cousins. So they're both the study of people, but psychology is the study of individuals and sociology is the study of groups. So from my perspective, historically, What was interesting to me about the study of groups in undergrad was twofold. I loved the statistical side of it. I loved math. I was always great at math, but I had zero interest in becoming an engineer. And so I started to pursue sociology, which I hadn't known anything about before I entered college. And while there, I had aspirations of becoming a lawyer. So I took courses, uh, including a history of racial justice and the law with Judge Higginbotham. And it must have been awesome. It was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. And so out of undergrad, I joined an economic consulting firm that provided expert witness testimony for litigation, predominantly litigation. And it was there that I started to get much more exposure to the business side, to understanding dynamics of different companies and organizations and how they work together. And I was running a lot of damages analyses and antitrust cases. And I started to realize that you know, getting exposed to that, doing a lot of reading and due diligence work on the discovery side, that I loved the analysis probably more than I loved the law part of it. 
And so that was by happy accident, I guess, how I started to shift away from going back and thinking about law school and started to shift away from that and started to think about how do I parlay my interest on the in the analysis side into something else that I can be doing. And that's when I started to look into market research as a career opportunity and what that might look like. And it was a happy accident that I happened to find a company that had just entered the legal vertical and had a history in professional services generally. And when I joined the firm, it was temporary, right? It was 2001. I had just returned from Spain. I was interviewing in New York City. And unfortunately, it was, you know, the fall and all of the job opportunities disappeared subsequent to September 11th. So when I found this job, I thought, I'll take this for now. I don't think this is going to be my career, but I'm going to take this for now. And six months into it, doing one of the first industries uh, reports in the legal industry with the BTI consulting group, I realized, wow, I really enjoy this, but I'm not making enough money. So I went back and I asked for, I think, what amounted to almost 100% raise. (laughs) (laughs) And I got it. And so I stayed. And from there, I ended up staying with the BTI consulting group for over a decade. So that was really, and once you're in something for a decade, it becomes part of who you are and really defines your career path. It does. You know, it's interesting. You talk about starting out working for uh, essentially an expert witness organization. I found over the years working with particularly statistical experts to be fascinating in terms of the way they look at the industry or the particular problem that they're trying to solve. And so it's fascinating to me that that was sort of the trigger for you. Very much so. And I loved working with the experts, to be honest. And and in some ways, I find academics and lawyers to have some similarities in personality (laughs) traits and in intelligence, of course. And, And that was one of the things that attracted me ultimately, I think, to working with the academics and then subsequently to working with lawyers. As you began to work more on the legal vertical with BTI, what did you find unusual or different about the legal vertical as opposed to some of the other industries you had had exposure to through the expert witness testimony? Mm -hmm. So, well, it's interesting. So when I was working at the economic consulting firm, I was most often exposed either to other lawyers who, who were hiring us or to the direct clients, which would typically be in deregulated industries. So telecommunications clients, oil and gas companies. And over the course of my work, I enjoyed working with the lawyers most, in part because they were constantly challenging and extraordinarily curious. And that, for me, was an appeal. You know, I don't especially enjoy presenting to people who are either not engaged or don't have the level of curiosity to be asking questions and pushing back. I like pushback. (laughs) I don't know, maybe it's a masochistic streak, but (laughs) there is something about the intellectual debate that fascinates me and that I feel that I learn from constantly. And so I enjoy that type of back and forth and being forced to constantly think through and then rethink and revisit to ensure that ultimately what we come up with, whether it's in market research or strategy development, or in this case, the expert witness testimony, that it was as solid and well thought through as it could be. You did some data analytics work at Harvard, I presume. 
Mm -hmm. I remember doing work with a program called SPSS and some of those programs on the social sciences uh, side. You do a lot of work in data now, and I presume you spend a lot of time also with the expert witness as well as BTI learning the ins and outs of data analytics and data visualization and data manipulation, yeah? Yes, very much so. Then you went from BTI to what, Law Vision? Yes, and that was a journey. It was interesting because at first, you know, I was more about the statistics. I enjoyed using the analytics to understand the buyer behavior and how groups behaved differently. And over time, and I don't know if we go back far enough, I think BTI still does some of this, but now it's been pushed over. You know, AMLA does more of the industry analysis these days and Jay Um, who is amazing, as you know. I do know Jay. (laughs) So over time, I became increasingly intrigued by the question of why some firms performed better than others. And that ultimately drove me to start thinking and exploring it from the perspective of the firms themselves, right? After spending 10 years listening to what clients had to say about law firms, I was intrigued by seeing, okay, well, some firms are performing much better than others. And it's not simply based on what clients think of them. It's a big component, but it's not the only component. And so that was what spurred me to join Law Vision. And at the time, I just happened to have a, a connection, somebody who introduced me to the strategy team there, which is the former Hildebrandt strategy group. And I hit it off with them and had an opportunity to work with them for three, almost four years to really understand the strategy side and the law firm side. And that intrigued me. And the more I did that, the more I came to realize that it wasn't just about the strategy. So it's almost coming full circle for me, but it was about the people. And what more often than not I was seeing is if the strategy wasn't being executed, it wasn't necessarily because the strategy wasn't solid so much as it was very much linked to the culture and the leadership. And so I started to connect you know, what was a basic premise in leading change, except at that time I hadn't heard it yet, which is Cotter's concept of head and heart. You could have the best Mm -hmm. business case in the world, but if you can't connect with people on an emotional level, then they're going to be pretty much unlikely to get on board. Is that the path that led you to found the uh, Tilt Institute? It is. It is. It was very much about wanting to continue my journey and my path and continue to follow my passions. And there was also a practical element and a personal element to it for me as well, being analytical, like as I am. When I was considering the idea of leaving Law Vision, I looked at my travel in the past 18 months and looked specifically at what travel I was doing based on my own client work what travel I was doing for other people's client work and what travel I was doing for other reasons. At the time, I was on the board of Legal Marketing Association. And when it came down to it, it was only a third of my travel that was associated with my personal originations. And I had two small children at home and I was a single mom. And I said, well, that was my answer. (laughs) I was (laughs) perfectly happy to reduce my travel considerably to have more time at home. Fair enough. Tell me about the Tilt Institute. Tell me about the mission and the work y'all do. Of course. So when I started the Tilt Institute, it is now, it was then very much about shifting perspectives and using data information, 
research to get people to think differently about whether it's their market opportunity, their strategy, their talent pool. It could be virtually anything. But the idea was how do we use intelligence and analytics, which doesn't always mean data. It could mean in-depth studies on culture or leadership. But how do we use research to inform what we're doing on a daily basis and ultimately improve the organization? So that is the mission of the Tilt Institute and the origin of the name very much in terms of shifting perspective. So I want to spend some time talking about the data side and some of the challenges you find in the industry. But before we get there, this change of perspective point is interesting to me because it's lawyers are, as you know, a cantankerous breed and like to argue and like to find holes in facts and arguments particularly when it's causing them to change their perspective. So before we talk specifically about data and how you manage it and find it and visualize it, how have you found that dynamic to be manageable? How do you deal with that change process? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And it's interesting. So I think I have witnessed multiple times disagreements between partners and law firms. And more often than not, there's a whole lot of in my experience or based on what I've seen or in my opinion that comes into those conversations. And one of the fantastic things about coming in with a set of data and an analysis that truly digs into either financial performance or results of a culture survey or client feedback you come back and this is no longer me, you know, your consultant informing you what I think. This is me reporting back on what the data shows. And the ability to shift the angle on that a little bit and point to data as the source of information as opposed to an individual can be remarkably effective in getting, I mean, lawyers are analytical people. And so, they think analytically, they approach often their work, their legal work analytically. So to put a strong, solid case with evidence in front of them can be a useful tool. Now, that doesn't mean they don't debate the evidence and question the evidence. And so over the years, you learn what you need to do in order to prepare for that. I remember when I was an analyst back in my economic consulting days, one of the things we used to do is prior to submitting any kind of testimony is we would sit in a room and we would, in essence, try to tear apart our analysis. And that exercise taught me so much about what it would be like to work with lawyers, because that is exactly what I think the initial gut reaction is to any type of information that's put in front of them that is contrary to their instinctual belief or understanding. So being prepared to handle those questions and to refute them with data or to be reasonable and say, you know what, the data doesn't show one way or the other, let's look again or let's look deeper. So there are two components of this data analytics process. I think maybe there's more, but one is the actual underlying data and the analysis itself. And the second is the visualization and the presentation of the data, the presentation of it in a form that users can consume and make actionable decisions based on. Let's start with the presentation of the data, the visualization of the data. What have you found works 
for lawyers. And I presume you have sort of your own tricks and ways of presenting data that you found to be consumable. How have you managed that process, the presentation of data in a way that people can understand it and at least have reasonable arguments based on it? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And it depends on the audience. And I say that because when I think about some of the challenges that law firms have with data, there's a number of them, but one of them comes down to the education and training on how to apply data. And depending on who you're working with within the organization, they're going to have a different level of sophistication in terms of consuming data and knowing how to take that data and shift it into an actionable plan. So for example, in working with lawyers, one of the things I hear frequently and see frequently is I've been told most lawyers do not truly understand how their law firm makes money. And so when I am presenting information about financial performance to a law firm, if I were sitting across from you, Steve, or from somebody who has sat in a leadership position for a decade, who knows when I say RPL and PPEP, what I'm talking about, I will back it down to the point of explaining exactly what the metric is, why it matters, and what relevance it has to whatever the issue is at hand. And I find that bringing people through those steps, which is a delivery method as opposed to a visualization method, but that's mm -hmm. part of the process in getting people to be able to use data more effectively is making them understand how to connect the dots between the data and the application of the data. And from a visualization perspective, I think the one thing that is probably most useful, and there are all sorts of tools and techniques for simplifying charts and graphs and making it as, as easy as possible to read. But the one thing that is probably most useful is ensuring that somewhere on your slide or data visualization, there is a clear summary point. So you tell people in writing what you want them to get out of the chart. This depends on usage, right, and what type of context. But for the most part, if you're using this to influence somebody's behavior, then tell them what it is in the data that you want them to see. That's a great point. Okay, let's take a step back. Now, let's talk about the data itself. Uh, you talk about challenges law firms have in terms of assembling data, gathering it, data hygiene. Tell me the types of data that's most relevant to the projects you work on and what challenges you face in getting clean information to be able to analyze and manipulate? Sure. It's all challenging. <laughs> <laughs> I know it is. <laughs> so I guess I put data into three different buckets and two of these buckets apply to what I do on a regular basis. And one I think is distinct, but also important to mention. So the first two would be the client and market information. So understanding your client base and the markets that you're serving as a firm. That could be your brand profile, that could be your market awareness. So you can include both external and internal data on that side. The second bucket is that internal financial and operational data. So understanding how the firm is structured, what your leverage model is, what your capacity is from a financial perspective, where are you profitable or less profitable? And then the third bucket, and this is the piece that I don't personally do work in, but I think it's critical to include is legal work, how you are actually delivering your legal work. So that gets into the areas of knowledge management, you know, contract terms, 
How do you leverage something you've already created in order to potentially streamline delivery of that again in the future? So those are three different buckets of data. And when I say there's three, I'm grouping them in three. But if you actually were to look within a law firm as to where all that data is housed, it's probably in a thousand different places. Yes, that's my experience. (laughs) So, And that is one of the greatest challenges that faces law firms with respect to using data. It's not a question of we don't have data. There's plenty of data. It's just not housed in a way or captured in some instances in a way that is useful for analytical purposes. So for example, most common one that I love to analyze a client base by industry sector to understand where is the concentration of the client base by industry sector. Many firms look at everything from a practice group perspective. We want to shift that and start to look at it from a market and client perspective. We want to understand who we're servicing. Data is rarely accurate if it's captured at all. And so finding something like that to be a useful tool to understand whether or not you need to structure yourselves differently or position yourself in the market differently to pursue certain trends or opportunities. Especially when you think of right now in the light of the pandemic, there are certain industries right now that are decimated and there's other industries that are thriving. If you can't quickly cut your clients to know which side of the equation they're sitting on, it's hard to tailor a message to them about your services and how you can help them. I find that on the flip side of that, one other thing that I'm always astounded that law firms don't know or measure well is profitability of virtually everything, but mainly profitability of a client, profitability of a matter. So this pure lack of understanding as to where and how they're making more money in order to be able to then invest in those areas for growth. That is another piece where, again, the siloing of data internally makes it incredibly difficult to do those analyses. The siloing of data is a huge problem in the industry. What type of advice do you give your clients in terms of their data management to try to deal with some of these problems? Because it's an organizational challenge, right? You have data silos, you have information in different places, all the problems you just alluded to. It strikes me you, you must have to have education and training and change management to leadership to understand the importance of data and the importance of the change in the data stewardship needed to have accurate information. Exactly. That is 100% right. So the silo data is a component, the education and training on understanding the importance and value of data, why it matters. And then as you indicated, how do you lead change in such a way that you get people to care about the data? And operationally, you mentioned data stewardship. That's a place where if you don't have a data strategy and you don't have somebody who is ultimately accountable for maintaining the quality and integrity of that data, it won't happen. And so it it is very simple. It's like anything else. You can't leave it up to every single individual at the firm to make a judgment call as to when data is important and how to enter it in a certain way. There has to be somebody who's ultimately responsible and accountable for that. And then I would say there's one other component in terms of thinking of law firms and their use of data. So there's the data capture and silo nature of it itself. There's the leadership and education component. And then there's also just pure analytical capabilities. 
I have often stood up in a room where I'm doing a presentation on competitive intelligence and I've asked law firms, how many analysts do you have at your firm? And I say, okay, who has two, right? And you'll have some people raising who has more than five. And once you get to that point, five, which for a firm of a thousand lawyers, it's not a lot of people, it gets really small, really fast. So the analytical capabilities, the ability for people to analyze any element of the data, including the financial side, is pretty small. Fortunately, the financial side seems to, to be growing with the advent of more pricing focus, but it still isn't quite where law firms need it to be in order to fully leverage the data for decision-making. No, absolutely. Let me sort of riff off this a little bit, but change it from the focus on, on data because I know you do other things as well. You've talked about the need for, I think I'm stealing your words, to dramatically reform law firm leadership. Tell me what you mean by that and how does one go about doing that? Sure. So this stems from my work with law firms and recognizing you know, there's all these structural challenges and challenges executing on strategy and how do we continue to innovate and change and all these questions. And at the end of the day, unfortunately, what happens with respect to law firm leadership is for the most part, law firm leaders are designated based on their success at client development. So lawyers who are successful rainmakers are more often than not highly influential, highly respected, and therefore put into positions of leadership, which has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not they're a good leader, whether or not they can be effective, whether or not they're great at managing people. There is virtually no correlation between an ability to sell and an ability to lead. And so when we look at leadership in law firms, I think there's several different aspects that will help leadership expand, grow, improve. One is, is simply going to be preparation, training, education, right? So making efforts and investments so that we have better equipped people coming into leadership roles. The second is bifurcating the role of leader versus manager. I think historically, practice group leaders are in many firms glorified managers. They are responsible for P&L. They're looking at capacity and operations. They are not necessarily being designated with leading the charge in terms of driving a strategic vision. And then the third piece would really be the allied professionals piece, right? The business professionals and bringing them into the fold so that they can take on more elements and aspects of leadership. There's a generational component to this as well, I presume. What's the role of law firms in terms of preparing people coming into the industry to begin to think differently about this challenge that you're describing, the leadership, the differentiation between leadership and management, the working with allied professionals. Is this predominantly a law firm challenge or is it something law schools ought to be focused on as well? You know, that's always interesting. So I do believe the industry has changed enough at this point in such a way that, you know, you go back 25, 30 years, the competitive dynamics were simply different. Law firms were able to bill hours. Clients were less directly involved. They didn't have, quite honestly, as much power and influence over the decisions and the way that they worked with law firms than they do today. 
And as law firms have increased in size and complexity, and the market has shifted in such a way that it's more competitive, and even sitting here right now, we're sitting on the precipice of deregulation, which will make it even more competitive. All of those compound to say that it's not just about the legal skills anymore. It is just as much, if not more, about the ability to cultivate clients, right, which includes both client service and business development, and the ability to be good at the business side. So how well are you managing your practice? How well are you managing those around you? How well are you able to leverage information into growth opportunities across the firm? How well are you able to use professionals at the firm to advance your goals? All of those are becoming increasingly important and related and under that umbrella is going to also be the development of other people. And those are things that, to my understanding, I never went to law school, but as I understand it, those are not taught in law school even today, or we're just starting to see inklings of bits and pieces here and there. No, that's right. And I know you, you also generally advise law firms on strategy. All of those drivers that you just talked about are certainly very different now than they were even 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and how do law firm leaders begin to navigate these multiple options and challenges in the workforce as you're competing against law companies and the big four? And you're right, you got Utah and Arizona and Washington out there thinking about differently about how to regulate the industry. And you've got all the dynamics you just talked about. As you look at how your clients are, are navigating this, how do you help them think differently about how to prepare for the future? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, there are a number of elements and aspects and there's the tradition of looking at understanding a strategy and ensuring that you have a direction. <laughs> That in and of itself, though, is, as where we started, that in and of itself is not ultimately enough to ensure that you're going to be able to then execute and implement on a particular strategy. And that's where we start to see the value both in leadership in getting people equipped to be more effective leaders and very much interrelated and connected to that is in fostering a culture at the firm that is going to help to propel change. And what I mean about that piece and leaders are, are integral to what a culture looks like is the law firm cultures today. I know everybody describes them as collaborative and collegial. And, but at this point, I've done almost a dozen different cultural assessments within law firms, really coming back to the organizational behavior aspects and elements. And if you think about culture in terms of, I like to equate it to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, very similar where in a culture, the base fundamental element is safety. If people do not feel safe, ultimately they won't be able to self-actualize or continue to prosper within their role. And then above safety, and this is, I'm pulling now from culture code because I find it to be by Daniel Coyle, I find it to be one of the most accessible books and, and pieces of research on culture, but there's many others out there. So the first layer being safety, the second layer is the vulnerability or ability to fail, you allow for failure. And then only from there do you get to the established purpose, which is when we start to talk about not necessarily strategy, although that can factor into it, but more the core values elements. But that safety component within law firms is an area that I think the industry overall struggles with. And it struggles with it for a multitude of reasons, some of which are 
purely structural, right? The partnership structure, the way we promote people, how we measure in terms of billable hours, all of that creates this little microcosm where it's not always easy for individuals within the firm to feel that they are being rewarded for the right things or incentivized in the right way and for the right behaviors. And so that's what leads us to a situation where as an industry, you know, we don't perform very well when it comes to diversity and inclusion. We have incredibly high rates of depression and alcoholism and suicide, sadly. And the industry box constantly about, I don't understand why as a, we can't innovate. Why can't we do anything differently? Well, you know, people don't necessarily feel safe in the organization. And we tend to have perfectionist cultures that don't allow anybody to ever make a mistake. So if you can't make a mistake, you really probably can't advance or evolve too quickly. And that all creates just this challenge, I think, for law firms. And I, I have found that that's part of the reason that I have leaned over and started to focus on the leadership piece, because I truly believe that if we have more effective leaders, that the culture will follow along, right? If we can teach leaders to be better, to be more effective, to be more self-aware, to be more empathetic, then that will help drive decisions that will create safer environments that will create situations where people feel valued for something beyond the number of hours that they can work. That's such a fascinating point that, you know, you, you do talk about innovation, but if you're not prepared, if you don't feel safe, if you don't feel like you can make a mistake, how can you accept the risk of innovating and doing something differently that you're not 100% sure is going to work? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a great point. Before we wrap up, and I know we've, we've sort of gone over our time a little bit, I can keep this conversation going forever. We continue to navigate through uncertain waters as it relates to a variety of factors, but certainly the pandemic is uppermost on people's mind. What lessons are law firms having to learn as they try to deal with this shifting virus and this shifting impact it has on the way we deliver our services, relate to one another, conduct our business? What changes are we going to see coming out of this? So I can tell you what I, I'd like to see come out of this. <laughs> That's, I'll take that. <laughs> it's it all depends. I think there are a few elements, and I, I have repeated this refrain many times at this point. One is the idea that I believe law firms generally will benefit from being more disciplined and intentional with respect to their decision-making and how they're developing people and how they're cultivating culture. And what I mean by that is I think historically there has been a haphazard approach <laughs> to, you know, if we walk into each other in the hallway, then I will engage with you. Or if you are working in the same office as I am, then I will dedicate time to help you develop as an individual. That's an incredibly happenstance approach to professional development. And what we learned in the pandemic is as people went all remote, now that's gone. And the only way we are going to be able to continue to develop people, although there are those that want to simply force everybody back to the office so they can go back to that method, what's flawed in that method is the inclusion piece, right? Because people tend to cultivate and foster those who are similar to them. That is just psychology, it's human nature. And so inclusion can be an element that is not working in an environment where you're taking this happenstance approach. And you're going to also see 
flexibility will become increasingly important to this generation coming back into the office. And that flexibility is going to require firms to learn how to conduct development through a remote environment, which inevitably means they're going to have to plan it. So it will be, it has to be an intentional effort. The other, I guess, change from the pandemic that I am more positive and hopeful about is the humanity element. I think that having gone through this crisis together and having everybody placed into or displaced, (laughs) maybe a better term, it forced people to interact with one another on a more human level, to literally through Zoom, see each other's homes and children and pets, and to learn about sides of people that we may have been working with either within our firm or our clients. We may have been working with them for years, but never knew certain elements or aspects of their lives. Being able to embrace that humanity and embrace people holistically and authentically, that's something that is a positive, I think, that's come out of the pandemic. And I would love to see that remain part of the industry. I hope so, because I agree 100% that that connection with people is not what anybody thought was going to happen 20 months ago, but it's hopefully something good that's come out of this stuff. Yes. Marcy, thank you so much for your time. If listeners want to find more about you on the Tilt Institute, they can find you on the web. You're kind of all over social media. Thank you so much for spending the time and let's keep the conversation going. Steve, I appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.